Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. This is number 28 in the Addiction Connection podcast series. On all types of addiction topics. Can't believe we've survived 28 weeks. That's how old our podcast is. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to take anxiety as a one big, one big chunk of anxiety. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the different types. But our plan is actually to go through each of the different subtopics of the anxiety in future podcasts. So today is like... Anxiety one, anxiety the overview. One, the overview. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, so just to kind of list the the next coming anxieties. So anxiety two will focus on post-traumatic stress disorder. Anxiety three, generalized anxiety disorder. Anxiety four will be panic disorders. Anxiety five will focus on social anxiety disorders. I am struggling. And anxiety six will be obsessive compulsive disorders. Mm. I'm not going to say anything. When do we talk about ADHD? That would be a good podcast in the future. Yeah. And so basically when we're looking at anxiety and the lifetime prevalence of that, I mean, it's pretty common. You're talking 1.6% of the general population lifetime prevalence. So... This is something that we see in our clinic all the time, every single day. I would think that's higher, but maybe that's just because I'm skewed by sharing an office space with you. Well, it could be seeming <laughs> like it's it could be seeming like it's higher because we see a lot of patients with opioid use disorder, and in fact, the rate in that group is about twice as high. Yeah, three point two. It's exactly twice <laughs> as high. It's exactly twice as high. So yeah, very, very common. And I think when you're treating patients in this case with opioid use disorder, it's something to not forget. We always talk about the co-occurring disorders. So this is definitely one that has a high co-occurrence. Yeah. And the most important part is number one, recognizing it and make that number two, doing something about it. I think often when we see people with different types of addiction and they have other comorbid you know, issues such as anxiety, and if they're not addressed, relapse is going to be something that comes your way sooner. Well, and the other thing with just recognizing it is is really trying to figure out, is this a new thing or is this because of their use or is this something that they've always had in their whole life? So it's what came first, the chicken or the egg, but it's always important to keep it there because you don't want to not do something about it again, like what you just said, Kurt. Yeah. And I think the one other thing to remember, especially in the groups that we see with buprenorphine is... Often people will complain about what they think is anxiety, but can it also be a withdrawal syndrome from one of the different substances that they were actually using? Right, and their buprenorphine might just need to be increased. Correct. Anyway, we kind of just went off on a little bit of a tangent, but an important tangent to say the least. So first thing we're just going to kind of touch on is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, Uh, things that you think about when people have PTSD, they have intrusive thoughts. Nightmares and flashbacks of the traumatic events. And you know, and I think I'm going to go off on a tangent here for another second is that PTSD doesn't always have to be your typical, this is what I'm having PTSD from. It can just be, it can be very much more common y, common that's a new word. Yeah, great word. Common things. Um, we'll touch on a little bit of those, but. 
don't think it's all the horrible things. I just asked Siri, comedy is not a word. <laughs> but anyway, other characteriz- characterizations is they avoid the reminders of the trauma. They're hypervigilant. They have sleep disturbances. And so all of these things, especially taken in light with opioid use disorder, I mean, a lot of these characterizations really fit kind of some of the the typical kind of withdrawal type things with that too. But these type of things when they're bothering a person would definitely want them potentially to use or try to do whatever they can to make this go away. Yeah, and the reality is that this is a group then that has, you know, a considerable amount of social, you know, and occupational and and I think just interpersonal dysfunction. So this affects a person's everyday life. And I think that that's always something that we need to consider as we look at how the patient's doing, you know, when they're in recovery, are there other issues that are somewhat limiting how they function? So what kind of things can provoke PTSD? Well, there's been actually... I thought that was a question you were asking me. Oh, Kurt, how many types of events have been characterized to provoke PTSD? Funny you should ask. It's actually about 29. About 29? That's kind of a weird number to say about, too. I know, but I don't think that, you know, everything has been completely worked out, but there's roughly 29. So men and women do differ, obviously, but the top four reasons why men suffer PTSD, rape, combat exposure, childhood neglect, childhood physical abuse. Women, it's a little bit different, um, but again, starts with rape, sexual molestation, physical attacks, um, and being threatened with a weapon. So slightly different. Um, I can't believe that uh, combat Exposure isn't increasing. I mean, I do take care of a number of women in the military, so and they have been deployed. So I think we're going to see more of that. Well, I, you know, maybe when we do that deep dive of this. So the anxiety podcast number two, um, we can get a little bit more detailed into some of that and maybe some of the trends with that. So stay mm-hmm. tuned. And of course, when you look at that lifetime prevalence of PTSD in the U.S., it's roughly somewhere between six and nine percent. And of course, some of this is really dependent on, you know, what group you might be a part of. And if we look at the Native American population, it's it's running a lot higher, that 14 to 16 percent rate. So really a lot different. And that's pretty high. That's, that's quite high. Um, but how does this actually affect the brain? Really, the pathophysiology is unclear. Likely, of course, like everything else, there's probably a genetic susceptibility that then, for whatever reason, something in the environment kind of brings it about and makes a person more likely to have what we would call PTSD. So, Heather, if I was to have some PTSD, what would you do about it? Other than ignore me. But, <laughs> like, uh, you if I was really a patient. or treatment. You know, PTSD is a hard one. There are things that you should not do, and I think that's important to start with. Benzodiazepines are actually completely not indicated, and I think we see that a lot as people using that for PTSD. Um, The biggest one is psychotherapy, EMDR. A lot of the old ways of treating PTSD and psychotherapy was a lot of exposure therapy and a lot of therapies actually going away from that. So for those of us who have never had psychotherapy, what would EMDR be? It's it stands not for not that I don't need some psychotherapy. I, <laughs> it stands for eye motion desensitization desensitization. Try again. Eye motion desensitization 
um, re- respond. So basically, you focus on different things that may have felt traumatic, not necessarily actually focusing back on the actual traumatic event and learning how to try to kind of reset the brain's natu- natural response to these type of sensations. So that anxiety building, any type of those visceral type feelings. How hard is it to find somebody that does that? It's very hard. Um, there's a couple of different ways. There's light bars that people use. There's these vibrating things that you put in your hands, um, these sensor things. Um, but it's hard. It's almost like a biofeedback slash neurofeedback like Alex talked about a few weeks yep. back. Yeah, that was really interesting. And of course, there's SSRIs uh, and trauma-focused therapy too that is done, you know, with exposure at the standard, you know, that's kind of the standard thing at this time. Um, and I think that often when I'm sending people off for uh, evaluation, I think I've had a number of people get that. So, so again, when you're looking at the gender differences, um, men two times more likely to have an alcohol use disorder if they have uh, the diagnosis of PTSD, 2.7 times more likely to have another other type of substance use disorder. Whereas women, it's actually higher, 2.5 times more likely to have alcohol use disorder and four and a half times more likely to have any other type of substance use disorder. And, you know, when again, we do the deep dive. Um, is it more likely because there's more people, more women that have it or what? Um, but either way, women are more likely to succumb to some type of use disorder, again, with that environmental genetic interaction. You know, it's interesting when we combine those with some of the other things we've talked about in the past and how women typically move into use disorders later, but telescope Mm -hmm. faster. So I think always keeping that in mind that they may do well for a long time, but when they start using different substances, they may have telescoping, which means that it's going to accelerate quickly. Go poorly quickly. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Look at that. That was a double adverb. I don't even even know what an adverb is. I I just had this discussion with my sister. Um, So... With co-occurring SUD, remember, 50% of the patients presenting for treatment, um, you know, of an SUD actually have PTSD. So, I mean, it goes both ways. And I think that when we see somebody with a substance use disorder, you have to think about that frequently and have those discussions with them later. Right. I mean, five times the U.S. prevalence of the rate of PTSD in these patients. Um, they also have worse prognosis and are more often uh, to relapse early. So these, again, that whole, you need to know about it and you need to be aware of it so you can really treat the PTSD with the substance use disorder. Yeah. Again, these are people that have dual diagnosis. They need treatment for dual diagnosis. So, All right. Shifting into the next topic under anxiety is just generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. And of course, that's pers- well. Geez, I'm reading about myself here. Characterized uh, by persistent <laughs> well, you worrying. Said it. <laughs> hmm. um, no, and uh, significant distress and impairment. I guess and, you're not really impaired. <laughs> more days than not, really, for the last six months. Well, maybe if you're referring to this last. I'm going to just anyway. look at my calendar. <laughs> uh, but the prevalence for this is is really again very high. I mean, if you look at the U.S. lifetime uh, risk of having general anxiety disorder, it's 5 to 12% in your lifetime. So, you know, this is 1 in 10. Right. So, again, most common mental disorders, one of the most, two times as high in women because we're used to, like, planning and organizing and keeping people on task. That's a generalization. I'm just thinking of the women in... That you work with, so myself and Katie and Aaron and Maria. I mean, I could keep going. Um, so you've yes. got lots of things to do, and, and I don't have anything to do. We just so, don't let you. It's part of your how, whole MO. So how do we screen for this 
Dr. Bell. Let's see how he's letting me just keep talking. It's so great. So we use the GID-7, which is a series of seven questions. You know, there's not at all, sometimes, most of the time, always. Um, and you get a score for this, and we'll go into the details of what that means and what the GID-7 looks like, again, in the upcoming Generalized Anxiety Disorder yeah. podcast. And, of course, when we look at treatment for, for GAD, you know, I think the standard has been the SSRIs and the SNRIs. And I, I think often, too, again, Many physicians, and we find this when we review charts, many physicians go right to the benzodiazepine without anything else. And and in fact, that's not the great choice. Acute, maybe, you know, if there's something like... Death in the family. Right. Something that just happened right now, fine. But mm-hmm. again, longer than three months is potentially actually going to make it worse. So um, yeah. there's not a lot of data that after three months, it really helps much. Um, Buspirone or Buspar uh, does have similar efficacy to benzos. You know, it. Why do you think patients don't think that? Because it's not a benzo. That's Plus, right. Plus, if you've, isn't the thing is if you've had a benzo in your life or recently and then you switch to Buspar, it totally ruins, it doesn't Ex- have any efficacy yeah. anyway. And, the, you know, you don't get that feeling that you get with a benzo. And, and people describe that all the time. Correct. So, so again, the benzos, uh, you know, in my life, uh, when I'm taking care of patients, it's more of an acute thing. It's not a chronic thing in general. Do you general. think that's because when you started practicing, there were no benzos? <laughs> uh, there were a couple. Uh, and when Xanax came out, it was uh, not addictive. Yeah. So I, Well, uh, we've learned a lot in yeah. your lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely... Anyway, why don't you tell us what NISARC says? Well, NISARC, of course, the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions... This is something that's done every so often, and, and it's it's updated. So we get newer and newer information uh, every so often. And basically what this showed is that 50% of patients with uh, anxiety, well, GID, you know, had a comorbid uh, substance use disorder. So half. half. So it's really half. So you can flip a coin every time you see a patient who's, who's having, you know, this generalized anxiety and then start looking because so many of them have it. And what you find is that the patients who have both, this dual diagnosis, generalized anxiety plus substance use, 90% of them, their um, substance of choice is alcohol, so alcohol use disorder. Yeah, and if you fall back to our alcohol talks, I mean, what's the initial thing you feel with alcohol? Relaxation. Relaxation. Um, Other substances, heavy smokers have five times greater risk of generalized anxiety. Marijuana, it's still unclear. Although if you go back to our marijuana talk, there's a lot more talk about, you know, more that panicky and that psychosis. And, you know, as the levels of THC go up in the marijuana, anxiety does go up too. Yeah. Speaking of panic disorder... Yes. Uh, You're going to let me talk about this one. I I am. Um, And so... Again, prevalence. What do we think with panic disorder? Well, it's right in that range again, right around you know roughly three three percent to five percent in in general of lifetime uh, prevalence in the United States, and of course women two times more likely. Because we worry about things. <laughs> anyway, how does this happen? Combination of stress and underlying genetic predisposition. Maybe it's a double X chromosome thing. I don't know. You, uh, you know, you see it though. I mean, let's. I mean, I've been around long enough to take care of two or three generations in a family, and uh, you will see that anxiety early on, and uh, and it'll just run through the family. So yes, definitely a genetic component. So how do you diagnose it? Recurrent panic attacks, attacks followed by a change in behavior related to the attacks, persistent concern about more attacks, 
And this is not drug-induced or from withdrawal, and you can't explain it by any other disorder. So, um, yeah, it's again, it's it's one of those things. Risk is um, with with alcohol use disorder co-occurring two to four times higher than if you don't have alcohol use disorder. Mm. So smoking in patients with panic, well, it's higher than with any other anxiety. There is more smoking in the in the panic disorder group than any other anxiety. That's pretty amazing. Do you think amazing. that's because when they panic, you know, smoking can be used to make you calm down or give you energy. So if you're in a panic, having that cigarette kind of bring you down. Again, nicotine, the most amazing drug. When you're, <laughs> when you're anxious, it calms you down. When you're tired, it wakes you up. Don't get it, but it works. All so. right. The next one, social anxiety disorder. Go um, for it, because I'm like the opposite of that. I only have that when I'm around you. Um, <laughs> so really, when you look at uh, SAD, social anxiety disorder, really it's that kind of that excessive fear of scrutiny or being embarrassed, you know, and, and that people are kind of looking at you. I think, you know, I hear that often that people uh, are in a crowd and they feel like everybody's kind of staring at them. You know, these are people that do not want to get up in front of a crowd, but that would not be Dr. Bell and, uh, and perform. Well, obviously you either, Yeah, I mean, considering I, you get to start all of our presentations. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a big problem with uh, with standing in front of people and talking, but um, yeah, I mean, it can be, it's anxiety provoking, no doubt about that. But but when people with social anxiety disorder do this, it, it really leads to pretty significant distress and, and impairment in function. And, and people, uh, just even the anticipation of having to do that can be very destructive. So, yeah, lifetime prevalence, five to twelve percent. So again, it's it's high. One in ten, one in twelve. Um, it's pretty high. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, is environmental things help cause it as well? Maybe. You know, they look at all these different things. That, but it's really much like a lot of the other anxiety disorders. You know, there's some hereditary, there's some environmental, uh, and and really diagnosing it is really mostly the history, right? Correct. What's their fear? Uh, what things really set this off? You know, it's that whole fear of being humiliated is just really so difficult for people. And almost any social situation, and I'll, and I'll give an example. I had a, I had a patient 30 years ago, and um, just being in a car with people was was would cause this horrible anxiety. And these people sadly will avoid get-togethers, family weddings, anything where there's... Couldn't go to a Vikings game. Right, just this. Yeah. You know, so that's that's pretty significant. Yeah, but as soon as he's treated, boom, right to the Vikings game. So So how do you treat it? Well, I think the mainstay is still always going to be SSRIs, you know, SNRIs as well. You know, obviously you're going to have those people that are much more treatment-resistant, it's rare that you'd use a benzodiazepine, but MAOs uh, can sometimes be used. You know, gabapentin, I've never used for this particular thing, but obviously we use gabapentin a lot now for so many things that we do uh, in addiction for anxiety or alcohol and, and so on. Well, and I think some of the treatment will depend, again, on when they typically have the most issues. So people who perform in, so people who do a lot of public speaking in their regular day-to-day lives or have to, um, beta blockers can help with that, especially in that performance subtype. Yeah, in the old days when we didn't use a lot of uh, benzos, like, for instance, if somebody had to um, go to court and had to testify, we'd use beta blockers, Mm -hmm. and that worked really well. For so the, social anxiety. So the lifetime prevalence of social anxiety in patients with opioid use disorder is anywhere between 3 to 39%. So 
That's a huge range. That's a Um, massive range. We'll have to get into the deep dive of that also coming up. Lifetime prevalence of social anxiety and alcohol use disorder is greater than 20%. Um, again, is this how they, you know, they go to a social situation, they drink to kind of not feel that anxiety, um, prevalence of alcohol use disorder in patients with social anxiety disorder, 48%. I mean, that's half of people. Yeah. That's huge. Um, and social anxiety disorder precedes alcohol use disorder 80% of the time. So again, this is that coping. And treating it with something you can buy at a local store. Right. Without yeah. having to go into a doctor's office, which can also be yeah. cause distress. So, lastly, uh, I, I'm not. I'm going to try not make fun of you. Um, <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorder, and of course, unlike the other anxiety disorders, this there's really mixed results as whether this, uh, you know, this particular thing has a higher rate of co-occurrence with substance use disorders than the general population. It's one of those things that you know. Do you see it more in particular groups of? Uh, uh, of patients using certain substances. And, and really, it's there's no clear data. Well, and it's hard because, you know, when you talk about a person who goes and picks up heroin, a lot of it's that anticipation. It's that whole ritual of getting it ready as part of it. Um, is that just that dopamine Russian anticipation? Or is that kind of, um, you know, symbolic or kind of similar to when a person with obsessive compulsive disorder also has these rituals to kind of ease their anxiety. So it is, it's really interesting with those overlapping things with SUDs, that whole ritual thing, which uh, we talk about a lot with uh, some of the different uh, things. And I think the coolest part about the rituals is how, you know, and how it can increase the dopamine even before they use the drug. Correct. So very interesting. Yeah, like we said, um, more to come on all these with deeper dives, specifically into some of these different anxiety disorders. So with that, we will let Battle Legs take over, and we will chat at you next week. Oh, the desert dreams of a river that will run down to the sea. Like my heart longs for an ocean to wash down over me oh, Won't you take me from this valley to the mountain high above I will pray, pray, pray till I see your smiling face I will pray
beneath her wings Like a voice longs for a melody Oh Jesus, carry me Oh Jesus